Let's attend to his word so that we might follow where he leads now. Let's turn to Joshua 3, the crossing of the Jordan. Last week uh, we were thinking about that uh, wonderful interlude uh, in the story when the two spies in Jericho uh, were sheltered by a Canaanite prostitute called Rahab. And the great takeaway message the spies brought back to Joshua was that God was delivering on his promise that they would take the land. They learned from Rahab that everybody uh, in Canaan is quaking with fear because they have heard of God's great deliverance of his people. They've uh, heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, the defeat of Sihon and Og. And Rahab herself asks if she might be taken under the protection of the wings of this God uh, who is the Lord of heaven above and earth below. So it was first and foremost a record of the faithfulness of God. It's also an account of the faith of Rahab, uh, a faith gifted by the sovereign God uh, who would in time lift her out of her past history this blighted life that she's leading uh, until she is now a believer who will be placed into the line of the Messiah. Now we move from the record of one uh, individual Canaanite woman's faith to the faith of an entire nation as they prepare to take the step that will lead them into Canaan. But once again, it is primarily a chapter about the mighty acts of God, acts of God, great acts of God call forth our faith. And we see that in the crossing over of the Israelites into Canaan. So all the way through the book of Joshua, we have these two great features, the acts of God and the response of faith on God's people in faith and obedience. And all our application will reflect on how we respond to God's mighty acts. As Christians, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, we are to undertake things in obedience to God that could not be done in any other way but by exercising faith in his power. Uh, the former uh, British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli once said, the world was never conquered by intrigue, it was conquered by faith. It will be faith that will conquer the promised land. Now, chapters 3 and 4 really belong together because chapter 3 tells of the crossing and then chapter 4 uh, concerns <coughs> memorial, memorialising the crossing. However, uh, chapter 5 is about the sacraments, is about, about uh, circumcision and the Passover, which are concerned with remembering. And because we're going to have communion in a fortnight, uh, I thought that we would leave chapter 4 over and we would look at the two together on the 16th. So let's look at what's said here in this chapter concerning, first of all, uh, the, the significance of this event. And then the preparation uh, for God's visitation, and then thirdly, the power of God's salvation. So the significance or the purpose of God's deliverance. On Saturday, in case you didn't realise it, uh, we, we crossed a significant uh, line at 2300 hours. 
On 31st of January, the UK left the European Union after 47 years of membership. And there were marches, celebrations held to mark the event. And the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, released a video message uh, at 2200 hours, 10 o'clock, in which he said that Brexit, which followed three years of political wrangling, is not an end, but a beginning. Now, whether or not uh, you can compare leaving the EU with uh, entering the promised land uh, or not is open to debate, but there are some similarities, uh, although on a much lesser scale of significance. The result of Brexit was never intended to result in three years of political wrangling. That was not the end game. The result of the Brexit vote was intended to lead to uh, a decisive new chapter outside the EU. And in the same way, the exodus from Egypt was not intended to result in 40 years of wandering around in the desert. It was intended to lead on to the possession of God's promises. This is what God says to Moses when Moses is commissioned in chapter 3 of Exodus. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. God delivered the people from Egypt during the Passover. He gave them a meal, the Passover meal, to memorialize this event. He gave them a miraculous sign at the Red Sea, parting its waters, allowing its pe his people to pass through on dry land, but engulfing the Egyptian army as they pursued with the waters. He led the people to Sinai, with a pillar of cloud during the day and a fire by night. At Sinai, he gave the people his word, his law, and made them into a, a covenant nation. The people celebrated the Passover as redeemed men and women. It's a wonderful beginning. But the call was always to go on into the land. And as we said earlier, 12 spies were sent from Kadesh Barnea into Canaan. And they came back, 10 of them, with a bad report. Oh, we can't do it. We need to turn back. We could never conquer the land. Only Joshua and Caleb urged the people forward. It was a terrible day in Israel's history. Having been led to the point of entry, they experienced a faith failure. And they turned back. And for 38 years, they're wandering in the desert. Until the generation who had come out of Egypt had died, passed away, and a new beginning could be made. And so you can see how significant this chapter is in the light of the past failure. Here they are again at the point of entering into Canaan. Again, spies have been sent out, but this time the people respond with faith. And God is going to provide them with another miracle closely corresponding to the parting of the Red Sea. He's going to part the Jordan and give a sign which will be uh, an assurance of his presence and power as they move forward in faith and obedience. So, it's with great reluctance that we, we didn't uh, 
sing Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah tonight with all of its illusions. But we didn't because crossing the Jordan is not a, a metaphor for dying. It's not a metaphor for passing on into glory. It's a picture of entering into God's fullness. In Joshua and in the book of Hebrews, we've got this repeated mention of entering into God's rest. The ideal future held before God's people was a land where each man sat under his own fig tree, enjoying the fruits of the land and worshipping Yahweh together with all the people. But that rest, Joshua tells us, is won by conflict. This is then the purpose of God's deliverance. As Moses put it in Deuteronomy 6.23, he brought us out that he might bring us in. God's people have to progress. God's people aren't redeemed from slavery that they might stagnate in the desert. And that's a picture of the Christian life. When we're converted, we don't just down tools and think that we are finished. We're called to a life of progress. It's a very dangerous thing if there is no progress evidence because that well may well show that there was no conversion. The evidence of truly having been brought out of the bondage of sin is that we enter in and possess what Christ has won for us, which is chiefly the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They will be seen increasingly in the lives of God's people as we go on to take possession of what Christ has won for us. Some Christians uh, are a bit like the Atlantic chip shop. You know that the Atlantic uh, is still telling everybody that it is uh, the winner of the best chip shop in Scotland 2009, you know. It's 11 years ago and they're still proclaiming it. They're resting on the laurels from 2009. Hopefully they're not still serving the, the fish that was harvested in 2009. But it's uh, very similar with some Christians who hark back to the day of their conversion or to some past experience when we are called to be moving forward all the time, to making progress, to taking the land. And that's very much the spirit of the book of Joshua. Chapter 30, verse 1. There remains very much land to possess. And that call to go and possess is like a bugle call to lethargic Christians. Get up and get on. Get up and get on. Hebrews has the same uh, call to us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Let us go on. We have to move forward by faith in the mighty God who, in Rahab's words, is a God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. So this is an event of huge significance. The nation who turned back are at last on the verge of Canaan and with reminders of uh, the exodus all around, another parting of the river, the Ark of the Covenant, we're reminded God is a gracious God who is slow to judgment and who provides new beginnings. A hugely significant event. And because this is so significant, there is a great preparation that is required. There's a preparation for God's visitation. 
And there are three elements in this uh, preparation of the people. First of all, there are instructions in regard to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Ark of the Covenant, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant is a box. It's a wooden box. It's made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Uh, It has cherubim on either side uh, with their spread out wings. The cherubim are looking down uh, in worship. Uh, on the lid of the box, which is also termed the, the mercy seat. And this is like a throne. Who is enthroned between the cherubim? And God is enthroned between the cherubim. And within the box, there are the stone tablets with the two tables of the Ten Commandments. And this figures God's presence. And the Ark of the Covenant is held within the most holy place of the tabernacle. Pardon me, or the Holy of Holies. Uh, the place that was forbidden to anyone but the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he went in with blood and applied the blood onto the lid of the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So it represents God's presence Uh, It's a dangerous thing for sinners to come near because God is a consuming fire. The priests are to carry the the ark before the people on poles. The people are to look to the ark in order to know the direction to take. But there's to be a distance of 900 meters between the people and the ark. And the reason primarily uh, doesn't seem so much that it's Symbolizing the awesomeness of the ark, although it is awesome, but it seems its visibility is the important thing. They are to be able to see the ark. Now, remember, we're talking about a huge number of people. Over two million people are about to cross over the Jordan River, and this instruction is so that every one of these people will have clear sight of the ark of the covenant. As the ark moved ahead, the eyes of the people will be on the ark. When they cross the riverbed, they will look in the ark and not the piled up waters. And it will remind the people that what is at the heart of what's happening now is God himself. This is a mighty act of God. So easy for them to be sidetracked by the the bustle of striking camp or the excitement of getting across the great Uh, banks of the Jordan uh, across what had once been uh, a mighty flowing river. And for all the detail to become so vivid and real that the big picture was forgotten about. God and his plan of redemption was forgotten about. But by keeping their eyes first of all on the ark It acted as a kind of key to all that was going. It was God who was leading them ahead. Uh, A couple of summer holidays ago, uh, when we were in France, we visited uh, a pear orchard in Normandy. And I get kind of excited about these things. And the the danger would have been for me to have dashed into this place and to have gone around and and looked quickly at all of the different... uh, cultivars of pear trees and the, the, the different uh, pressing rooms and the equipment that were in the various outbuildings 
and it would have been quite impressive. But there was also a museum there with a very, uh, very interesting and carefully planned key to the whole area, to the whole orchard. And it was worth the time to read about the, the history of the place, how it had once been a working farm, what all of the different implements were for, and to gain a picture of how everything that was there fitted together. And sometimes we just rush into things. We rush into the worship of God uh, without having uh, an appreciation of the enormous significance of what is about to transact, even when we gather together on Sunday morning and evening. And keeping their eye upon the Ark of the Covenant was like ensuring that the people didn't fail to grasp the divine significance of all that was happening. Also, the people had to consecrate themselves. Uh, that involved washing their clothes and inner concentration as well as your renewed dependence on God. They're about to enter into a completely new experience and their minds and their wills are to be focused and submissive. God works in the lives of people who are consecrated, set apart, for him. And thirdly, God exalted his chosen leader. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And that's a, it's a line that's repeated again in verse 14 where we're told that uh, in, in the next chapter where the, we're told they revered Joshua all the days of his life just as they had revered Moses. So just because the eyes of the people aren't, are to be fixed upon that symbol of God's presence doesn't mean that God's chosen leader was unnecessary. It was vital for Israel to have leaders like Moses and Joshua who were men of God, men of faith, who led the people faithfully. God knew that the people needed to have confidence in their leader if they were to hold their nerve in the battles that lay ahead, they needed to know that Joshua was a man guided by God, with God's seal of approval on him. And so they gave him his place and they followed where he led. A necessary aspect of preparation for the visitation of God is a healthy relationship between uh, people and the leadership of the church of God. So there were these threefold preparations for God's coming in a great act of power. And then we have the act itself, the parting of the waters of the Jordan River. Now, it's a wonderful characteristic of God that he loves to do the impossible at the most impossible times. And that's why we're given uh, a little bit of, of uh, ge geographical information. Uh, this, we're told, uh, was a time when the Jordan is in flood. It's in flood at harvest time. Now, the Jordan River uh, runs between 30 to 35 metres wide. 
and it has a depth of well, around about one metre at the places where it can be forded, goes as deep as four metres in other places, and it has a strong current because of the drop in elevation between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Between all the information you're getting about uh, Israel's geography this morning and this evening, we're getting a good idea of uh, how the, the land went. Uh, there's this drop of uh, three metres per mile between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. And it has to be crossed at precisely this time of year, when it would have been impossible for two million people to have gone over. Yes, uh, two spies perhaps could have forded the river uh, at some risk, but not two million people uh, with their animals, with their tents, and with lots of young children. And yet these were the conditions God chose to demonstrate his mighty power. And when the priest's feet touched the water's edge, the water stopped flowing near the town of Adam. Adam was 20 miles north. And the water at that point piled up in a huge wall of water. Now there could be no naturalistic explanation for how the people crossed over. You know, uh, even if they, you know, they, they were going to take hours to cross over, even concentrated into a, a, a big square, marching a couple of thousand abreast. It was a major undertaking. Calvin writes, the title of Lord of all the earth, here applied to God, is not insignificant, but extols his powers above all the elements of nature. <coughs> in order that the Israelites, considering how seas and rivers are subject to his dominion, might have no doubt that the waters, though naturally liquid, would become stable in obedience to his word. Why do things have the properties that they have? Why is water liquid? Why does it flow? And why are stones solid? Because God upholds his creation according to uh, certain regular ways of his operating. All things are sustained by the, the power of his word. And God intervenes to do something in what seems to us an irregular way. And we call it his miracle. An extraordinary act of God. And this again is, is another significant detail. This was an extraordinary act. That's why in chapter 4 the people built a cairn. Because God wasn't in the business of doing this every day. Every time some Israelites wanted to cross over and visit uh, the, uh, their, their friends in the, the territory of Reuben, for example, uh, God wasn't going to allow them safe passage across a dry riverbed. And this is where sometimes modern believers make a misstep because we want to spiritualize the story and we want to put ourselves into the footsteps of the Israelite in relation to some of the challenges that we have. We say, you know, life will always present difficulties. There will be impossible barriers like the Jordan River uh, which are preventing us from enjoying what must be God's best for me. 
you know, God's best for me, whatever we think of that being. And so we think that we must simply put our shoes, ourselves in the shoes of that Israelite and claim uh, a parting of the water. A parting of the barrier, whatever that barrier is, to enjoying God's best for my life. And when that doesn't happen, well, there follows disillusionment, and resentment, and bitterness. But then the question is, then how are we to apply this to our lives? What is the, the relevance? Well, the relevance is actually given to us by Joshua. Uh, jo- uh, but sorry, by God, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hevites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. The, the logic is this. If God parted the Red Sea, sorry, the, 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 the Jordan River, then delivering on his promise to give the land will follow as night follows day. It will be as nothing for God to do that. God is not in the business of hiring himself out as a miracle worker so all our barriers can simply be removed by exercising enough faith. That's not how God's miracles work. But God's mighty acts of faith are a stimulus to trust in him for the future. So the logic is, if God did that then, he's not going to fail to do something much less for you now. It's the logic of Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So here it is. If God did the greater thing, surely we can trust him for the lesser thing. If God parts the Jordan River, Surely he's going to give the land to his people Israel. Now then, let's apply it to our situation today. See those anxieties that you and I have in the week that lies ahead? Uh, The many crises that you just know are going to rise up in your life. Uh, Do you think that God is going to let you uh, down? Of course not. God doesn't promise a dry walk through the Jordan in overcoming your troubles, but he has given his son and his death and resurrection, Jesus' death and resurrection, are the great signs of his power to ensure you God is for you and he will give you all that you need to bring you in his way to his promised goal. Let's pray.